Okay, so 40 years uh, before this battle in Jericho, the people of God were freed from slavery in Egypt, right? Um, so here we are at the Battle of Jericho, and which is roughly uh, 3,400 years prior to today. And Jericho is actually a pretty significant city in the realm of things because some scholars have actually said that it could be uh, the oldest city on earth. And so, uh, pretty cool fact. And yet the story itself in Joshua 6 isn't actually about the significance of the site of Jericho. Uh, the more significant part of this story today is about the strategy that's taken by God's people to win the battle of Jericho. Because what, I mean, there's a lot of battle stories in scriptures and just some of them are just kind of wild with their plot lines and twists. And yet this one is really unique in just the sense that God calls them into a battle in a way that just doesn't make any sense. And it's just counterintuitive and outrageous as to how you'd normally go about getting victory that they could even lose their own lives. And so they're asking the question, what's this, what's this about? And, and what God is telling his people in this story, and what he's going to say to you and I as we read this story, is that if there's going to be victory in the battle, it's going to happen by God's grace and for his glory. And it's not going to happen in your own strength and strategy. And so I don't know what you and I, you know, what we all came in with today and what battles that you've been struggling with and facing. I don't know what struggles you've been, have been going on in your life like today and, or this week or this year. But I do know that we all have struggles and we all deal with doubts and, and discouragements and moments where we just ask God, like, what, what are you doing here? Like, why are you sending me this direction? I don't, I can't make any sense of what's going on. And like the factors aren't adding up right now. Like going to the budget, looking at the finances and going, this doesn't, this doesn't add up. Like the math isn't making sense, God. And like maybe you're calling me into something and the timing isn't working right. Like I'm, I'm trying to wait and you're pushing me to go. Or you're, you're, you're telling me to wait and I'm ready to go. And things just aren't adding up. And yet I think we can all find ourselves in that place. And so today as we look into Joshua the story of, of Jericho, Joshua chapter 6, I think what we'll find is some encouragement, you and I, uh, as we discern what I think is, could be said as God's blueprint for battle. A blueprint for battle. And it begins like this. The first thing is that battle, our battle, begins in worship. Okay? That's where it starts. Begins in worship. Second thing is the weapons for the battle are faith and obedience. Faith and and obedience. And third, what we'll see at the very end, my favorite part, is the battle is ultimately won by grace, by the sweet grace of God. All right, so that's what we're going to see as we dive into the text together. I'm going to pray, and then we'll, we'll jump in. Father, just want to thank you for your word right now, and that you give us a clear understanding of it. God, that you are the ultimate victor of the battle. And I know people in this room have walked in with different struggles with different battles of all different kinds, and you know what those are, so I pray you bring them to the surface. And God, that you be with us right now and bring us the encouragement we need to hear your word and walk away changed by it. We ask for your spirit to come right now in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's look at uh, the first point, which is actually in 513, so turn back to chapter 5 with me and look at verse 13. That's where the battle actually begins. <clears throat> Chapter 5, verse 13. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. 
and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I've come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, what does the Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now, um, again, God's people are about to be entering into the land of Canaan, which was promised and had been on their mind for a while. And though Moses had been leading God's people, it was now time for a succession and leadership which meant there had to be a new encounter with God. Now, Joshua's encounter definitely mirrors Moses' encounter, who at the burning bush had this similar experience where God is, is there and present and, and says, take off your sandals, you're in the presence of a holy God. And so what's happening in this passage in Joshua is two things are being validated. One is that it's being validated that Joshua is the leader to take the new role. It's being confirmed. The second thing is that God himself is being validated as the ultimate commander over this army, right? It's God who's going to lead. And if Joshua is going to take victory, Joshua needs to know he first has to become a follower before he can become a leader. If you want to be a leader, you first have to become a follower. And so he sees this man interrupt. Now, the question is, who exactly is this man, right? And there's kind of some debate around that. It could be, there's some options. So here they are. Basically, it's either a high-ranking angel who's representing God, or it's a theophany. And the theophany means it's actually the manifestation of God in a person in history, possibly even the person of Christ. It could be either one. There's arguments on both sides. I'm not going to go into them right now, but the point is this is someone representing the very presence of God himself. And... Whenever Joshua realizes, well, actually, before he realizes that, he asks a question. He's like, who you be, right? Uh, he's out there. It says Joshua's by Jericho, so he's probably out there scoping out a battle strategy, thinking about how are we going to take Jericho and take him out. And then this man shows up, and he's got a sword in his hand, so he's like, whoa, like, what side are you on? Right, trying to figure out who he is. And he says, which side are you on? And the man says, no. No, I'm on God's side. Like, what? Like, I didn't ask, like, are you on my side or their side? No, I'm on a different team. What's that response about? What he's trying to say is, you're worried about if God's on your side. And the question you should be asking is, are you on God's side? You're worried about, is God on your side, red or blue, left or right? And what you should be asking is, am I on God's side? And so he realizes in this moment, he is in the presence of a holy and sovereign God. And he falls to his face in worship and bows down. And I love this picture because this is Joshua, who's an army commander. He's been fighting battles for a long time, mentored by Moses, a powerful man, has been told to be strong and courageous. And yet here he is bowing down in a posture of powerlessness displaying to us what God is saying to him is if you're going to win this battle that you're about to go into, this is where you need to begin, in a posture of powerlessness and a place of worship. Now, um, 
I want to share something with you guys that, that um, a battle that I've had. I know we all have our own battles that we've come in with this morning. So I wanted to share one with you about my own. 13 years ago, uh, I was in a Dallas, Texas apartment, actually in the city of Addison, and was living right on uh, the golf course at that time and place. And I thought I had it all together. 22, 22 years old, thought I had it all together. And yet on the inside, uh, I was absolutely dying. Because my battle wasn't with the Canaanites, my battle at the time was with chemicals. And the harder that I would try, the worse things got, the more I would fight that fight, the lower I became. And it got to a place to where I was even getting evicted from my apartment complex because I wasn't even paying, put, put the money in the right places. And so I was at my bottom. And in that place, uh, a good friend of mine, best friend, Gary, called me. And he said, hey, man, I know where you're at. And you know, I've struggled with the same things. And I just wanted to ask the question, like, hey, have you ever thought about um, asking God for help in your life? And I was like, and hey, thank you, but no thank you. Man, I'm good. Like, I know, I know some church people, and I'm not one of them. And so I'm good, but you do you. Right? That was my response. And he goes, hey, hey, I get that. Like, I get that. But listen, listen. What do you have to lose? And I kind of looked around, and I was like, well... At this current moment, not very much, actually, now that you bring that up. And so we go back and forth, and I'm like, well, all right. I accept his invitation to pray. And so I get down on my knees for the first time as an adult man. And what happens in that moment is I receive the presence of God like I had never had before. And the grace of God overwhelms me. And in that moment, I realize that I'm in the presence of an awesome God, and he takes the battle from me. And begins to fight that battle on my behalf. And here I'm standing, you know, 13 years later. Because that day he showed me he wants to fight the battle on my behalf. And the battle began in worship. And so I don't know what your battle is this morning. What you came in with, what you're struggling with. Maybe it's not the Canaanites. Okay. And maybe it's not chemicals like mine was. Maybe it's more like anxiety. Right. Just like those worrisome, wrestlesome, worst case scenario thoughts that just plague your mind keeping you up late at night, waking you up early in the morning, thinking about the same thing. You get that tension that fills your body and you can't get rid of that stuff. Or maybe it's like just depression. Like losing the intrinsic motivation to do anything with purpose. Angry at yourself, angry at the people around you. Kind of like Charles Spurgeon said about depression. It's like fighting the midst. Like you take a swing at it and nothing happens. It just comes right back in your face. Or maybe it's uh, contentment. I know, hey, or discontentment. We live right here in Rockwell, right? Middle of Dallas. Everybody's buying more, getting more, more stuff. Got to have more. It's hard to just be okay with what you got. It's just tough to be content. And that can be a battle. I just need to be okay with what I've got and not need more. Or maybe the battle's with the eyes and it's right in front of you. And keeping those eyes looking at the right thing at the right time and not drifting away into lust. Not being captured by the wrong thing and staring at the wrong thing. No matter what it is, we all have a battle in here, don't we? We all struggle with something. And so like Joshua, if we can take something from this passage, like let's, let's try it out. And maybe, maybe you're in the room and you're thinking, you know, I hear you talking about this worship and this God thing and like, hey, I get that too. Like if you're just here exploring it, Asking some questions about Christianity and doing some 
some discovery. That's great. Like, and I'm so glad that you're here if that's you. And I just want to pose the question back to you that was posed to me. Like, what do you have to lose? What do you have to lose to go back home today, step on your knees in a place of worship like Joshua, and just say, hey, God, would you help me with this battle? I need some power, and I don't have any. Would you give me some help? Now, I'm a visual creature. I like to see with my face, my eyes. <laughs> the stories are great, but I like to give images, right? And so I want to put this on the screen to show you just a little picture of what it could look like uh, for a person to be kneeling before a holy and sovereign God. This is a posture taken throughout Scripture by Jesus, by David, by Daniel, here, right here in the story with Joshua. This is a common posture that's taken. And certainly in the moment of, of battle, Joshua realizes this is where he has to be if he wants to get victory over Jericho. Psalm 95.6 says it this way, Oh, come and let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. And so if he was going to take victory, he had to begin the battle in worship. That's the first thing we can take away. Whatever battle you're in right now, the, first, the place to begin is a place of worship. The second thing is if uh, you're going to fight this battle, the weapons you need are faith and obedience. Okay, so we begin the battle in worship, and the weapons we use to fight are faith and obedience. Let's continue to the next point. Jump to chapter 6 with me. We're going to pick up at verse 2. We're going to pick up in chapter 6, verse 2. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war, going around the city once at once. Thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat. And the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said, all right, guys, take up the Ark of the Covenant. Let the seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the Ark of the Lord. And now only a sovereign God could say something like, I have already given Jericho into your hand before the battle has actually become, begun. Only a sovereign God can do that. But here's the good thing about God's word. If God says it, if God promises it, God will perform it. If God promises that thing, he will perform that thing. And they needed the reassurance that God would do what he said he would do. Because what he was about to ask them to do was outrageous. I mean, that's a crazy plan. This is Joshua with military experience, who in the moment was out plotting a battle strategy for Jericho. Remember when God interrupted him? And here God comes back with this plan. Like, wait a minute, this wasn't really on the radar as to like how we should carry about this war. Lord, I don't, I don't know that we should circle the city for six days and then do it again seven times on the seventh day. That plan hadn't really crossed my mind. Are you sure you want to do that? That seems crazy. 
But what's God trying to say to his people throughout this story? Especially to Joshua. If you're going to take victory of the battle, you're going to do it by my grace and for your, my glory. And this is not your battle. This is mine. So you walk six days around Jericho. And on the seventh day, you walk and you remember this is about me and this is not about you. And then you're going to take seven priests. And you're going to put seven priests in the battle. Like, what? You want to put priests in the battle? This isn't what we normally do, Lord. Yeah, but you're going to remember by the priests being there that this is a spiritual victory and not something you accomplish by your own strength or strategies. And then you're going to put the Ark of the Covenant in the battle. Like, this isn't normally in the battle. What are you doing? Telling us to put the Ark of the Covenant in the battle. Well, this is, you're going to remember by putting the Ark of the Covenant in the battle to keep your focus and your thoughts upon me. And that I'm going to be present with you in this warfare. And so God gives them the way to win the war. Now, that's the faith piece. Faith is tough. That's God's word. And we need to trust his word when it doesn't make sense. That's faith. Keeping God at the center when it doesn't make sense, right? Now, obedience came next. That's the first weapon. Obedience came next. I don't know which one would be harder because I just want to imagine what it would be like to be these soldiers who are getting this plan of attack that seemed to be pretty counterintuitive. And like day one, they're going around thinking, okay, we're going to make it. Here we go. All right, here we go. Day one, marching around, like getting some encouragement, right, pumping themselves up. Ooh, and making it around day one. <sighs> yes, we made it. But they know we're here, all right. We've been exposed. Uh, all right, day two, they go back around, motivate themselves. All right, we're going to do this. Oh, we're going to close. When they get around day two, okay, day three, they're going around again. They're getting tired, getting hungry. Day four, somebody give me a sandwich. I want to go home. Day five, no results. Nothing's happening. God, what are you doing? Day six, I want to quit. I give up. I'm tired. I don't know that they felt this way, but I'm guessing based on being human, they probably did. But had they wanted to give up on day six, they would not have been able to get to day seven and see the breakthrough that was coming in that direction. So when it gets tired, and when you get tired, remember, you keep walking, and I'll keep working. You focus on the priest. Remember, this is a spiritual victory. Keep the Ark of the Covenant right there. Remember, this is something that I'm going to accomplish in your presence. You keep walking, and I'll keep working. Obedience is your job, but the outcome is mine, and they make it through day six and go through day seven. Seven more times they circle Jericho, the city, and the priests blow the trumpets, and the men in the room all shout, hoorah, and the walls of Jericho come crashing down. And because the faith and obedience of God's people, they take claim of the city of Jericho. Now, Fast forward myth with me a couple thousand years, okay, over here to 1944. D-Day was a big day in our history, and there was a guy named Dwight Eisenhower who was the president at the time. On June 2nd was one of the most stressful evenings of his life. He had to decide whether or not the Allies would go into Normandy and take France and defeat the Germans. And Many thought it was a good idea because it could have turned the war over, but a lot of people thought it was a bad idea and a lot, a lot of negative consequences, 
and the factors were not worth it. For example, the weather was very unpredictable in France, which made it really hard to position themselves for an attack uh, in a reliable way. And then they're going onto a shore in France where Germans had been set up with machine guns all around the shore, knowing that many of their soldiers may be going into a battle and could be killed before the time they even got off a boat and had the chance to fight. Now, that just doesn't seem like a plan that makes sense, right? And yet, Eisenhower takes full ownership of the decision. And even though he's not the one going into battle himself, the soldiers are the one going into battle. And he takes full ownership, but the, the soldiers, what they, what, the way they respond is with total dedication and loyalty to him and this decision that he would make, knowing that they would be possibly losing their lives, leaving their wives behind, and maybe leaving their kids alone. And yet, when he makes the decision to go into battle, they commit to it. Yes, there's doubts. Yes, there's questions. Yes, there's skeptical. But by faith in the decision and obedience to the plan, they go into D-Day, take victory, capture Normandy after a couple of months, end up going into Germany, and the war turns in our favor because they followed through with this plan of action. Now, I want to put a picture on the screen again that depicts a contrast between D-Day and Jericho. Now, you can see that both these strategies just don't really make a lot of sense, right? D-Day, they're coming into shore that's surrounded by Germans, and yet... The soldiers are trusting in a fallible man named Eisenhower, who, though he, he was a Christian and became baptized while in office, just a fun fact, uh, fallible man who did not know the future and could not guarantee victory and yet trusted him and went through with the battle. And if that's the case for D-Day, how much more can we, like Joshua and Jericho, Put faith in a God who is infallible. He's an infallible God who knows the future and can guarantee victory. How much more can we put our faith in a God like that even when the battle doesn't make sense? Even when the battle plan that God gives us and the battle that's right in front of us seems to not make any sense. Just because it doesn't make sense to you and me, it doesn't mean it doesn't make sense to God. That's why it says in Proverbs 3, 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Because just because it doesn't make sense to me doesn't mean God doesn't, doesn't make sense to God. So I don't know what you're battling with again, but I want to ask the question this way. Has God ever asked you to do anything that sounded foolish? Has God ever led you into something that just seemed like it didn't make any sense? I know for us right now, like, we're stepping into Superior, right? We're going to plant this church in Colorado, and it doesn't make a whole lot of, lot of sense to me. Um, as Kai said, there are no churches in the town. And, and so there's, there's that piece. And also, I just feel personally inadequate to be a pastor. There's that piece. And then there's, again, the fact that every church that's gone and tried to plant in this place has not made it. They have failed. They have died. So it's like, what are you doing? You're just sending us into a place to go die? Like, that doesn't sound like fun. That doesn't like a good plan. I don't want to do that. And yet, we know that God's calling us into that right now. It's, it's insane. And, and 
you know, maybe your calling isn't disappearing. Maybe it is. I don't know. Maybe God is calling you disappearing. He put a seed in that. And, and, and you're looking at the finances of superior and going, that doesn't make any sense. It's like $3 to one out there. It just doesn't make any mathematical sense as to how to survive financially in that place. And yet God does things that don't make sense. Or maybe you're, you're right here and you're asking what God wants you to do in this moment in Rockwall or in Dallas, wherever you are. And maybe you're, you're looking at things like homeschool, for example, for your kids. And you're going, gosh, we feel the Lord leading us into this thing. And yet we feel completely unable to do the work. It's like, I don't know how this is going to work out. And yet... God's pushing us that direction, or maybe it's public school and you're asking a different question, or private school and you're like, how can we pay the bills, and all kinds of things. Or maybe, I know there's a lot of us in here that are, that are in the single phase. A lot of you in a, in a single phase of life, and, and that stage and place has a lot of questions in and of itself. It's like, God, what, why am I here? I've been faithful, I'm doing the right things, and you got me in this place, and, and I, feel like, I feel like I don't like this. And you know what, I... I think that's, that's good to confess that. And, and it's okay to feel that way. Yeah, I don't like this plan. I don't think the people around Jericho walking in circles like the plan. I don't think they were like, yes, this sounds great. But you know what God did? Because he knew how they'd feel. He knew they'd be doubtful and discouraged by this plan. He said, put the Ark of the Covenant in the midst of the presence. And the priest's there to remind you this is spiritual. And you keep walking. You just keep walking. I know it's hard. But if you keep walking, I'm going to keep working. And if you get to day six and it gets tough and you want to give up, which you might, and call it quits, maybe and take your own life if you're thinking those kinds of thoughts and you're there or you just want to give up on what you're doing, either way, don't quit. That's the first thing. The second thing is don't work harder. Don't work harder. That's the secret to continuing in the battle. It's not about trying as hard as you can. So if you want to quit, don't. But don't work harder. Go back to worship. Go back into worship. Because the worship of a holy and good God will bring you back to that place of faith. And that faith will ignite your obedience. And then you'll remember that obedience is our job, but the outcome is God's. And so the weapons we walk with in the battle we face our weapons are the weapons of faith and obedience. Faith and obedience. We begin the battle in worship and we fight with faith and obedience. Now, the third thing is we ultimately win this battle by grace. The victory is won by grace. So I want to turn to uh, verse 20. Verse 20 and we'll try and close out. So just jump down to 6, chapter 6, verse 20. It says, as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout. And the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up to, into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city, and then devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, donkeys, with the edge of the sword. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her, as you swore to her. So the young men and who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother, and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all of her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they had burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab, the prostitute in her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And has lived in Israel to this day because she had hit the messengers from whom Joshua sent to spy out 
Jericho. Now, I want to first address the elephant in the text, that there is clearly a destruction of an entire population here, and it seems like, what's going on with that? Can we talk about that? Yes, for just a second. Um, three things. One, we know who God is and who he's revealed himself to be is just and loving. So we know this can't be unjust or hateful in what he's doing. Second thing, we know from Leviticus 18 that the sinfulness of the Canaanites had reached its full measure and they were committing things, grievous sins towards each other and God, that it was time for justice from God's point of view. Things like incest, and child sacrifice to a god named Melech, killing their own kids and offering to a false god, just things that were detestable. And so there was a sense of judgment happening in this text. And we know, the third thing is we know that capital punishment, something like that, would be wrong if a person was innocent, right? That would be wrong if a person was innocent. However, we know from the biblical worldview that no one is innocent. And every breath that we take is an undeserved gift of God. So the prize, the surprise really isn't so much the justice. The, the surprise is that we have the grace to live at all. And yet I know that's hard to swallow. Okay, I get that. So I'm not saying I solved all your problems, but we do have a just God. And we want a just God. Like we don't want an unjust God. That would be a lot worse. All right. Now I want to move to the favorite part. Uh, my favorite part of this text, which is this tension in the text where though there's a judgment on this entire nation for their sinfulness, there's a rescue of a person from outside the nation who's a prostitute. So while God's judging a nation for sin, he's rescuing a person who's a prostitute. It's like, what? What? I don't get how, why? That one. Let's talk about that. All right. Hebrews 11.30 summarizes this story in just these two verses. And I like the way it says it, so I want to go to that. In Hebrews 11.30 and 31, it says, By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. Verse 31, by faith, there's that pattern, by faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had been given a friendly welcome to the spies. So what saved Rahab out of the judgment she deserved? Her faith. It was faith, and, and if it was faith, it's a really good thing because that means that her background didn't matter. If it was her faith, that means that her battle, what she was battling with, or her reputation or her label didn't matter. And it was her faith that activated the grace of God because that's what it does. What brings us grace and gets us out of what we deserve is faith. That's why it says in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. Rahab didn't save herself. Faith activated God's grace. It is a gift of God and not a result of work so that no one may boast. God was making this whole battle clear that no one would boast in the victory of it. And Rahab certainly couldn't boast when she was saved out of it. And you know what's awesome is you and I have nothing to boast about either. And that's where I want to turn the story around and make it personal. Because the, act, the truth is you and I aren't actually the Joshua's in this story. We're not the Joshua's, we're the Rahab's. Joshua is actually more pointing towards the person of Jesus Christ. Because Joshua was the leader of God's leader who was taking his people into battle, defeating the enemy and taking them into the promised land. Right? That's the story. And it's Jesus who's the ultimate Joshua, who's taking God's people, defeating the enemy of sin and death on the cross, and taking us, God's people, into the promised land of heaven. 
So Joshua is actually pointing to Jesus, and that means Rahab is pointing to us. So you and I are the undeserving Canaanites that deserve the justice of God, but can be saved from that by faith and faith alone. And that is really good news. Like, it is better to be the, the Rahab, because that means literally anyone can reach out by faith. That's a good thing. There's no, doesn't matter what your background is. Doesn't matter what your battle is. Doesn't matter what your struggle is. Doesn't matter what you're going through. Anyone can reach out by faith and be saved by the grace of God who did demonstrated this ultimately on the cross in Jesus Christ where he satisfied the justice of God and gave his life on our behalf so that if we believe in Jesus, he saves us out of the wrath we deserve and then gives us the power to face the battles that we don't have on our own. Isn't that good? And then we start to believe in him and trust in him. And as we place faith in him, the anxiety starts to deaden. And the depression starts to lift. And by trusting in him every day, the battles become his. And, and I got one more thing and then we'll be done. It's just Rahab. I want you to check this out. Rahab, right? She is known in this story as the reputation of a prostitute. I get that. That's, that's what she was doing. But when she's saved out, she brings her entire family with her, right? Her entire family with her. Now, if you've ever read the book of Ruth, in the book of Ruth, one of the highlights of, of the story is a person named Boaz. Now, Boaz was a godly leader who did some really redemptive things throughout that entire book. Now, guess whose mom Boaz is? Ruth. Or excuse me, Rahab. Not Ruth is, I'm in the wrong book. Rahab is the mom of Boaz. So she not only gets out of Canaanite by faith, but initiates a new kingdom legacy for her family. And then in Matthew chapter 1, in the genealogy of Jesus, where he mentions the genealogy, Rahab is actually mentioned in the bloodline of Christ in that chapter. And when she's mentioned in that chapter, she's no longer mentioned as Rahab the prostitute. She is mentioned as Rahab, the mother of Boaz. She's no longer defined by what she used to be. Now she's known by the kingdom legacy she set out for her family. Because when you trust in Christ and put your faith in him, he redefines who you are and turns you into something new. And the messes that we make and the messes that we create, and I've created, I've created the most of them, he takes and turns them into his message. And so whatever battlefield you're on right now, whatever you're going through, I just want you to take with you this story of Jericho and remember this could be a blueprint for your battle, all right? The first thing is that we begin our battles in a place of worship, falling on our face to the earth. And I'm, I'm serious about that. Like, go home and do that. Second, fight with faith and obedience and don't give up. Keep going. Don't stop on day six. And third, the battle is ultimately won by grace, a grace that we don't deserve. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have won the ultimate battle on our behalf. And we ask that you open our eyes to see the beauty of Jesus Christ and what he's done in our place. That we, we can celebrate ultimate victory in him. And whatever battles we're wrestling with right now and this week, whatever we're taking with us right now, I just pray that your spirit would bring a lifting and a strength to us to endure the battle and that you'd help us see how to have faith when it just doesn't make sense, God. We're wrestling 
with feelings of discouragement and depression. God, that you would remove those feelings and give us a clarity and a faith to go forward in the battle even when we don't understand it. We thank you for who you are despite who we are in Jesus' name. Amen.